So yes, Leslie and I are actually collaborating on uh, about a month's worth of field work that ended for me yesterday. So um, I'm going to preemptively apologize for where my head is today because I'm still I'm still in the field. So this is a letter from the field, if you will. Um, and my position at the University of North Carolina Charlotte is of an anthropologist of academic work. So I was hired by an academic library to do social science research that can inform policy. Very broadly written. So I am interested in the physical spaces in which people do their work, but I'm also interested in the behaviors in which they engage in those physical spaces. And because we live in the world we live in, of course a lot of those practices are digital and involve digital places as well. So um, while library shows up a lot, in what I do and what, how I describe what I do, I don't actually care whether people are in the library or not. And I have to, to actually tell the people that I interview that I don't care if they're in the library or not. I want to know what they do. And then I'm going to tell the library what I think people should know. Um, and it may surprise nobody to know that I'm <coughs> particularly opinionated about the things I think they need to know. Um, so I think that one of the things that we're trying to work and write against is this idea that there's digital over here and there's physical over here and the physical stuff is this traditional trappings of academia. It's the bookshelves, it's the leather, it's the funny hats that we wear when we go through the commencement, right? There are all these sort of physical trappings of academia and the digital is the sort of new alternate thing. And when you look at the actual practices of people, what you see is that these things are overlaying and overlapping and entwined. You, it, it is a completely artificial thing to separate them and suggest that people are engaging in them um, in sort of alternate modes. It's, it's all mixed up together. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to give you a little teeny tiny overview of library ethnography in the U.S. because that will contextualize me. Um, we're going to talk about the stuff that we've done this month. And then I think we'd like to sort of draw out in some of the data that we've been collecting this month, this notion of the visibility of the digital, right? And, and where, where do we see the digital? And how can, we, how can we observe that with the instruments that we've got, um, given that I'm not necessarily following the people that I'm interested in studying around all of the time, because that would be creepy and weird and would take a lot more funding than I currently have. Um, and then, you know, problematize this notion of uh, dualism, uh, that these are binary opposites. But <coughs> it's actually more complicated than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I you do have threw in a few little points, and I'm probably going to repeat myself slightly, and I'm not going to say very much. It's very much Donna's project. I'm very um, pleased to be involved in it in a small way. Um, just to say as well that it's, well, you're going to explain that in a minute, aren't I you? Will. But we're doing a, a little part of the project at the IOE as well as at um, UCI. <coughs> but one of the sort of starting points is, is that, um, that, that we see. Um, in this project is that the notion of the university is enacted through textual practices predominantly. And when I say textual, I mean in the broadest sense, including multimodal texts. So that's, I think, one point. That would be a sort of setting out our stall. That would be one of the first things that we would tend to look at. And I think a lot of the, <coughs> the work around student engagement, student, um, the student experience, um, doesn't take into account um, the textual nature of, of, of student engagement particularly. It's very often elided. Um, or um, rendered very abstract. <coughs> so I think that's an important part of why looking at libraries in, in the broadest sense, but also textual engagement is, is really what this project's about. <coughs> also, as I've kind of said this already, but as a result, 
a lot of the, the kind of textual semiotic practices at the university are, are kind of become transparent and so supposedly innocent repositories of, uh, as I was saying in the earlier presentation, which somehow lose their situatedness and, and materiality and embodiment. So again, it's this notion of, um, <coughs> of trying to bring that focus back, because I think that's very lacking, and in, in, in that's why the ethnographic work is so important to us. And um, as I've said before, there's obviously a, 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 a huge degree of, of, of digital saturation. So that it's really just setting out those points um, before we start looking at the data. And I'll hand it back to Donna now. Um, so the thing about library ethnography in the States is that it actually comes from a place of design ethnography. So the University of Rochester is really close to the Xerox Corporation. Mm -hmm. And they heard that the Xerox Corporation was hiring social scientists to help them inform the design of the stuff that they're trying to sell to people. And the people at Rochester said, hey, we're trying to sell stuff to people. We're trying to sell services. We're trying to sell things that we do. Let's hire a social scientist to help us do that better. So they hired Nancy Fried Foster, who is now with Ithaca SNR, the think tank <coughs> nonprofit research organization. And Nancy was very particularly involved in looking at the spaces and the practices of the students at Rochester so that they could very specifically configure the Rochester spaces in the library. So what happened is that people who were interested in engaging with qualitative research, which is not everybody, said, hey, we should do that at our library. And they started, if not hiring actual anthropologists, which would be my preference, um, engaging in qualitative research around student practices very specifically towards the sort of design ethnography piece, right? How can we leverage the knowledge that we gain about student practices to buy better kinds of furniture, to take over different kinds of spaces, um, to create group study rooms? And so the this very specific history of U.S. library ethnography is one that centers on design and physical spaces. So I was hired by a man who was at Rochester, and when he became our library director, he said, I want this kind of computer, I want my office to look like this, and I want to hire an anthropologist. So he hired me. And what he asked me to do is actually much broader than design ethnography. He said, I want to know what people are doing. And so if anthropologists study villages, I consider academia to be my village. And I'm interested in the practices, not just of students, and how those things erupt within library spaces, but I'm interested in the culture and practices of academia and everything that that means. So that means I have really an endless amount of stuff that I could be doing. And so what I tend to do is collaborate with people who give me focus. Therefore, I worked on the Visitors Residence Project, therefore I'm collaborating with Leslie, and trying in a series of projects to arrive eventually at a relatively holistic picture of what's going on when people <coughs> do their academic work. What does it look like when students write a research paper? What are the sorts of things that they do in their first year of study? Is that different than what they do in their third year of study? Of course it is. Is what third year students do distinct from what postgraduate students do? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And we can talk about that, but it needs to be grounded in what people actually do. Because my position is an applied position that I rely on instruments rather than the sort of long, I'm doing two years worth of field work and then coming up with something at the end of it sort of thing. So, structured interviews, photo diaries, cognitive maps, which we're going to talk about in a minute. These are the sorts of things that can accelerate the ethnographic process and allow me to insert myself into people's lives in a way that I can't do in the sort of traditional long-term, I'm going to an island and I'm going to live with these people for a long time sort of thing. Um, and some of that is just about doing applied work. It's accelerated 
Um, you don't necessarily get to write the articles that you would want to write. You write white papers, you do presentations, you go to staff meetings, you talk to people about what they should do, and you hope that they listen to the anthropologist. <laughs> so I talked my way into coming to UCL to do comparative work that will help inform my day job, which is looking at academic practices at UNC Charlotte. And because I'm an anthropologist, my argument is you can't just do this stuff in one place. You need to go somewhere else. You need to look at your practices through the lens of other people's practices. So it's very Margaret Mead, right? It's very making the exotic familiar and the familiar exotic. I don't get to talk about whether things are distinctive at UNC Charlotte until I go to a place like London, which is not like Charlotte, um, <laughs> and talk about what people are doing in those spaces. And then when we see the things that are similar and the things that are different, then we can start to talk about what it means. Because if all I do is look at what's happening in Charlotte, I don't know if they're doing that because they're in Charlotte, because they like NASCAR, because they're Americans, because they're first years. There's all sorts of reasons that they could be doing that. But if I see the same behavior in Charlotte that I do in London, then I can start to say interesting things. Or I hope they're interesting. So this cognitive mapping instrument is lifted directly from the Aerial Project, which is an Illinois consortium. Um, our buddy Andrew Asher, who is the other full-time library ethnographer in the US. He's at Bloomington right now. Um, what we do is we ask students to map all of their learning spaces. And what I say is, where are all the places that you go to do the stuff you need to do, I'm very precise, um, for your <laughs> academic work? This is the map of a 22-year-old female master's student in CIS, which is the Eastern European Area Studies Department. Um, and she is actually a literature scholar. And there are so many places, you know. So, so the, the first takeaway for me is that there's no such thing as a learning space. These people have learning landscapes. And they are literally all over London. So this is her home. And she's also written in the sorts of things that she does in her home and where she does them in her home. So she reads Russian in the living room, but she does computer stuff in the dining room. Um, she's got where she writes her essays because she needs longer silent concentration. This is the bus. The bus is a learning space. She has very particular sorts of things that she says she reads on the bus because that's what's conducive to that sort of thing. She also does language listening on the bus. She commutes to the CIS library. And I would like for you to notice that the library is this piece. So this is her departmental home. This is a place that academic staff and the librarians assume that all of their students always are. They are there, but there are also all these other places. And actually, there are other libraries. She goes to the anthropology library when she needs to focus because none of her buddies are there. And so she's not going to run into anybody. She has a laptop here. She talks about how she can go to the common room because she can eat there. If you want me to rant, ask me about food and libraries. Um, <laughs> she has the postgraduate room here. So all of this stuff, all of these places. The other thing that you notice is that she talks about tools. She talks about technology, but she's not necessarily talking about digital places, right? So she doesn't say, and then I go to Google, and then I do stuff on Facebook. She does talk about that in the structured interview. So that's why I do more than one instrument. So I basically took the visitors and residents interview, and I administered that 
to all of these people after I had them map the stuff. And what I'm seeing is that all of this is possible because of the digital. So if we wanted to do some sort of illuminated overlay in a slightly less crazy way than Dave did, this would all be lit up with digital. It's possible for her learning landscape to look like this because of her engagement with digital places and digital tools. This wouldn't otherwise be possible. Now some of the stuff she's also printing out, right? So there are paper affordances shot through this as well. So we've got, in addition to the ubiquity of the digital, we also have the ubiquity of the analog and the paper. And they coexist and the choices that she makes are contingent on the kinds of work that she wants to do. There's no absolute sense that she always reads stuff on paper or she always reads stuff on a screen. It's about what she's trying to do and where she can do it. Oh. <clears throat> so this is one of the social study spaces at UCL. And I'm afraid you can't see it, and I'm very disappointed. <coughs> this lump <laughs> is a sleeping student. <laughs> and what you can't see is that the student is surrounded by people who are working and talking and typing and being really active. And this student has carved out where these beanbags are, which I don't know about hygiene, but um, <laughs> this little corner, right? And so, so the idea that students take the spaces that are configured for X and make them what they need them to be. Um, in my work at UNC Charlotte, I actually had an architecture student do activity maps for me. And one of the things she mapped was the places where students sleep in the library. And this is an indication of you know what happens when you're in your 20s. They sleep everywhere, right? There's, there's no such thing as a mapping corner of the library. They occasionally will say things like, oh, we should give them a nice dark room where they can sleep. They're sleeping in the middle of the hallway where people are walking to and from the cafe. We don't need to provide them with a nap room. All we need to do is have couches or occasionally the floor, right? So anyway, students and their spaces. These are learning spaces, but these are also places where they spend a lot of time there and they get tired and they need a nap. <laughs> Bless their hearts. This is an undergraduate nap and she's also a C student, but she's a historian and she's a third year. <coughs> and she mapped the CIS library in terms of the desk where she works. So this is her with her hair. This is her buddy, who she studies with, and this is her other friend, who she studies with. She has tea, even though they don't allow food. She has snacks, even though <laughs> they don't allow food. Um, and she puts all of the things that she's doing, right? She's got her iPod, she's got her laptop. This is all of the annoying people that she doesn't want to have to think about. And I know exactly where this is. There's this, Cece has got tables like this, and then there's these cubicles over here. Um, and then because she's thinking about the library, and this is something that comes out of the VNR stuff too, she has a big stack of books. And also because she's a historian, it's actually still a really book heavy thing. They're using some electronic resources, but they're also sort of camping out by the Russian history section. And they, they do this, they stack the books up and it's just all over the place. Um, so these are the annoying people. Then she flips the thing over and draws the other library spaces where she goes. So this is Cease, which is represented in this very happy place. Um, SOAS, which is not a UCL <coughs> library, um, is where she goes for a window. UCL Maine, this is the bookshelf that she sits next to. <coughs> she goes because it's a pretty library, right? So this is the 
trappings of you know where you want to go. The sea space is actually very sort of contemporary, clean lined, not wooden. If you go into the, the main cloisters at UCL, it's that resonant space with tradition. Um, and then when she's at home, she can get as much tea as she wants, but she's lonely. She has library socks because the library is cold. And Tupperware is a big deal. And again, I will point out that in UCL libraries, you can't bring food. So she's clearly going to ask forgiveness rather than permission. Um, again, a distributed landscape. And it has to do with the kinds of things that she needs to do and the kinds of things that she perceives herself able to do and the people with whom she's going to do them. So the learning landscapes are not just about <coughs> places and about objects, but it's about people. And all of these things inform who they are and what they're doing. This is postgraduate desks in CIS. Um, anybody who thinks that students don't use books um, have not spent an awful lot of time in libraries <laughs> because um, they do. Um, this is in the Bartlett, and I just want to show again the coexistence of paper with digital tools. And what you often see is that they've got a laptop open, they've got their phone, they have a printout, they have a book, and they're going back and forth between the modes. So in terms of the physicality of academic work, there's an awful lot of code switching, right? They're, they're, they're working within different modes. Um, and we picked this because you have a desk coming in, right? Yeah. <coughs> yeah, like Donna was saying, she's been looking at three libraries in, in UCL, and I've been looking at the IOE library. Um, We've been doing observations as well, and I did a bunch of observations yesterday where exactly okay. like that, you know, yeah, yeah. every single person I, I observed had multi <coughs> sort of modal, I suppose, or different types of domains that they were using. This is one of the maps that I collected. Um, I think one of the, it's similar to Donna's, it's got the, you know, the, the transport, that, that kind of distribution of different um, different places um, throughout. We've got the home, the, 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 the bus, and so on. <coughs> but more importantly, I think, is the next one. Um, this student, this is a, a, a doctoral student, and this is actually a hot desk. But it turns out that the student <coughs> always takes the same hot desk, and it's a very sort of interesting kind of. Um, maybe some of you might have experienced this yourselves. That there's a sort of hot desk room, but really people have their own desk, <laughs> <coughs> and it, but it's not supposed to be your own desk. And she, I asked her to draw a picture, expecting a kind of map like yeah, the ones we've yeah, seen, yeah. but she was quite insistent that she wanted to draw herself at that desk. <laughs> that desk only. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. that is, and it's all about what this. Well, that my interpretation is anyway that <coughs> she's staking it out. Yeah. And and all these things that she's got her books, she's got food, and um, there's headphones, there's um all the different objects. And we spent the whole interview basically with her describing every last object on that table. And I kept saying, what about the transport? What about your home? What about? And it's like, oh, it's that desk. Yeah. You know, and that for her that was everything. And I said, well, what do you do if somebody comes in and is sitting at your desk? Oh. And she's like. Well, it's not really my desk. <coughs> she, just before I move on, there's a quote coming up, but she notes that she wrote on there as well. This, I find this, this example interesting because this student, to me, is all about creating a hub, mm -hmm. but also her digital hub is EndNote, and everything goes through EndNote for her. She was, and I got her to describe in quite a lot of detail how she writes and how she you know, interacts with text. And it's all about EndNote. <coughs> and because she doesn't have, she hasn't bought a license for EndNote in her flat, that's why she has to be at that desk. And, ah, yeah. and so to me, there was quite an interesting thing, but it's a physical hub that she maintains and mm -hmm. in the face of the fact that it's not really hers. And also that the, the EndNote was, uh, was her kind of digital hub. And then the next slide, we've got a part of the interview. I, I asked her, you always have the same one. 
And it's a bit tricky because we have like 20 desks and she explains that it's not really her own desk. <clears throat> and she just goes on to, to talk about um, the kind of politics of the desk spaces. And it reminds me a little bit of the, the, the printer in the staff room, you know, and that whole yeah. business of public-private. And I suppose maybe they are, I mean, I'm no anthropologist, but I suppose there is an urge to create a sense of a sort of temporary home of some kind to personalise the space. And I think there's a parallel that we can see between the personalisation of the digital um, <coughs> network that she creates and also the, the physical, and they're completely interrelated. She has to be in that space because of the, the digital right. um, access that she has there that she doesn't have anywhere else. So that's dictating her choices around the material and the embodied. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and the next slide, I think, is a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Same student, I asked her to describe her, her, her day. <coughs> And it's, it's very specific. Um, and I think the reason I included this is because of the importance of tea. Yeah. Yeah. And this Asian student, and she makes choices about her day <coughs> around being able to have um, a flask of tea. And she mm -hmm. doesn't go to the library because she's, she's more law-abiding than the other students. Yeah. Talk about yeah. She doesn't go there because she's not allowed to have tea. Like, why do we take the hat and have bottles of water but not tea? You know, that's just weird. And Water it does, does just as much damage to yeah. those books I as suppose it's the way that you drink it, but she was, it made me think about, you know, maybe students from cultures who would rather have hot tea than cold water, and, you know, even something like that material might make her stop going to the library because she can't have her tea. Well, and it absolutely does. I mean, I think one of the things that food and drink policies does is it puts a limit on how long you allow people to be in your library. And, and when students think about where their favorite <coughs> places to sit are, it's this really complex calculation of, am I near a toilet? Can I leave my stuff? Yeah. Um, who else is going to be around me? And are they going to see me when I'm eating? Because, damn it, I'm bringing that stuff in because I'm going to be here for four hours. And so, and I am biased. My library actually got rid of food and drink restrictions before I even started working there. So it's been just not even a thing. But apparently there was this huge storm and bomb around, oh, it's going to happen. There's going to be mustard all over the, you know, it was, it was just like, you know, apocalyptic scenarios. So I think, Donna, it's really like. interesting because it's almost yeah. like that idea that, that it's trying to underscore this notion of this rarefied, yes. non-material, non-biological yes. space yes. that people don't need to that breathe people, or eat. People or don't do scholarship because if you were a real scholar, you wouldn't need a snack. You are so dedicated to your craft that you will sit there and not need this stuff. And, and academic staff at UCL have said to me, I don't want to be sitting next to somebody as they unwrap their egg salad sandwich when I'm trying to do my work. Um, so fair enough. But what that does is, is it's a very particular notion of scholarship. And, and I was actually talking to somebody at a Senate House yesterday. I think it's a tone argument. I think it's about who are you as a scholar and what do real scholars do? And real scholars don't eat when they do their stuff. And real scholars don't even need to go to the toilet in that way. You don't have to think about this also. So I, I think it's a very carefully constructed, if a bit unconscious, tone argument about who gets to do scholarship and who should be allowed in library spaces. And so I think the food and drink policy is a proxy for arguments that people are having about who does and doesn't get to inhabit these academic spaces. And if we don't think undergraduates are actually baby scholars, if we don't think that undergraduates are doing research, then it's much easier for us to disavow uh, the any you know right they might have to be in these library spaces. How much time do I have? I'm ranting. It's ten past two. I don't know what that means. How much time do you have? Twenty minutes in this. Session. Awesome. Okay. Um, so bottles of water are allowed at UCL. Um, 
all across the way. So it'll be interesting to see how they negotiate the food and drink stuff. <coughs> this is a group study room in the Institute of Archaeology. And again, what I want to point out is even though they're using the sharing screen, they've got multiple laptops, they've got papers, and they've got pens, and they're moving back and forth among these different modes. Um, because that's, that's what it looks like. That's what they're doing. This is a postgraduate student in architecture. And what I love is that um, because he does field work, he's got Greece on one side, and he's got London on the other side. And then he's, because he's an architect, he drew me a map. And so he's got a street, and he's got the central house where his postgraduate space is. Um, and then here's Waite's house and the library's in there. But again, the library is just this little teeny piece of it. So as somebody who works for a library, I don't get to walk up to the people whose stuff I'm interested in and say, what does the library do for you? Because then I only get this. I'm not interested in just that. I want all of this. I want him to tell me about being in Athens and doing all of the research that he does to find out where he does and where he does it. So the content of his academic work, if I limited myself and the people I work for to asking questions about the library, we wouldn't see any of this. And we would be so much less useful. I would be so much less useful as a researcher. Um, and libraries have the potential to marginalize themselves by only asking about the things that erupt in their physical spaces <coughs> instead of asking about the entirety of the work that people do. This is a staff member, faculty member, um, at the Institute of Archaeology. And again, he's got his office here, and then everything sort of radiates out from his office at UCL. Where he does a lot of his work, though, is the Welcome Library. And he's got little bright lines around the Welcome Library because it's this fabulous space where you can have a cafe, and you can, he meets with his postgraduates there. He also goes to the British Museum, goes to the British Library, he's got other libraries. Um, Senate House, and when I asked him what the difference was among all these sorts of different things, he talked about very different kinds of work, right? I do this sort of thing when I'm in my office, I meet with my postgraduate students in the welcome, um, when I'm at the Senate House, it's for a very particular kind of material. So sometimes they're going to libraries, especially the British Library, they tend to go to the British Library because they need a thing. Not because they like working in the British Library. <laughs> because it's really kind of locked down. You know, you go in and you have to hand over all your stuff, and it's, um, it's a little oppressive. His home, he draws uh, as an armchair with a footstool and a cat. So that's how he does something. And then we've got London, and then he goes to Yale sometimes, and he works in the Beinecke, and he gets pizza. Um, and he also goes to Cambridge, and the interesting thing about Cambridge is that he has a brother who's at Cambridge. His brother does not work in the same field that he does, but they have conversations about their work anyway. So he sees Cambridge, not just because it's Cambridge, and there's some sort of university at Cambridge. So he does stuff there, but then he also engages with his brother, and so he sees the sort of personal engagement that he has with his brother as part of his academic landscape and part of his academic work. Um, what I love about this instrument, I love several things about this instrument. First of all, it's, it's really, really efficient. It's a six-minute mapping exercise. And then when I talk to them about their maps, it's maybe 15 additional minutes. And then if I tack on the VNR, it's like an hour. <coughs> Boom. I get such rich stuff coming out of this. It just, it's this really nice way of them evoking all the different sorts of decisions and places where they're, where they're going. So 
from a policy perspective, you're, if you're interested in what people are doing, um, this feels like a really nice, quick and dirty way of getting quality information that you wouldn't <coughs> otherwise have. And I think that there's, there's a great deal of value to knowing what kind of instruments <coughs> give you that sort of thing. Um, the variety of stuff that you get, the way that you can talk about commonalities between staff members and students <coughs> and certain kinds of students. I mean, there, we just finished collecting this stuff, so I'm going to spend you know, now a lot of time thinking about what this means, but there's so much that we have to think about. I mean, I'm just delighted. We've got tons and tons of stuff. Um, just get those. I've said it already. Okay. <laughs> just got to the um, So, in conclusion, <laughs> library spaces are and are not being used in traditional ways. That sounds really obvious, but I think it's important to point out. There are still really traditional academic things that are happening in library spaces, and that's great. There are also really non-traditional things happening, and we need to daylight those, make them visible, and then take those things into account if we think about Digital analog practices coexist. They are not mutually exclusive, and analog practices are not going away anytime soon. Because some of it is about how people think. And so they're going to print something out and write on it until we get digital affordances that allow them to interact with text in the same ways that they can on paper. And if you think about the <coughs> dominance of text in academic work, that is going to continue to be a thing. And even the students who have a lot of visual stuff to the academic work that they're doing, like in the Bartlett in particular, they're producing not just text, but they're producing things, they're producing maps, they're doing a lot of drawing. That involves paper, that involves surfaces, that involves things that are physical, that are not just typing into digital spaces. Non-library spaces are learning spaces, and I think the digital facilitates this. So it's become this sort of invisible overlay <coughs> on the landscape where people do the stuff that they need to do for their academic work. So it's shot through, and that means that people don't draw it because it's invisible to them. Learning practices, and I think this is one of the most important things that comes out of the VNR stuff, and my ethnographic stuff. The things that people do emerges from the content and purpose of what they're trying to do, not who they are. So I really want to push against this idea of personae as a way of effectively parsing what people do and why they do it. I think it makes much more sense, and I'm very opinionated about this, it makes much more sense to talk about the things that people are doing and then think about the implications in terms of space and policy. Because undergraduates do research, and postgraduates do research, and senior scholars do research, and they also do stupid Google searches about things that they don't know anything about, right? It doesn't matter who they are at one level, it matters what they're trying to do. That's it. Do we have time for questions? Yes. <laughs>